what happened was I was working in a department store just trying to get through college and no interest expectation, expectation of being in law enforcement whatsoever, but a singular event of helping apprehend a shoplifter changed the entire course of my life. And I think my mother's profound influence as a, as a peacemaker in our family shaped my view of what my role was as a peace officer. Also the, the great need for that kind of work in the world. Hey there, strangers. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dave.com. Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Once podcast. It's been a minute, but I am back for a brand new season. The voice you just heard belongs to Richard Beal, the chief of Dayton's police department. Chief Beal, as you're going to find out, is full of surprises. Among other things, the chief and I discussed the grief that brought the community together following the Oregon District mass shooting and why why it's still very important to so many people. How yoga pulled him from depression. The link between the Cincinnati riots and the protests here that followed the death of George Floyd. Diversity of the Dayton Police Department and the impact the chief's former interracial marriage had on his career. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com sponsored by the Dayton Daily News. Rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you find your favorite shows. Now here's my chat with Chief Richard Beal. So, um, you ready to get started? Absolutely. Okay. Obviously, last year was just terrible for for Dayton um, with the uh, mass shooting, with the tornadoes and everything else. How did that impact you as a leader of the department and a veteran officer and as a member of this community? Well, I can tell you that, and I've said this multiple times, that there is no event in my career for which I have grieved more than the Oregon District mass shooting. And I didn't know anyone personally, and I did not need to know them personally to feel the deep loss and grief. To literally, for weeks, almost daily, to be in tears over this tragedy. It was the most difficult experience in my entire career, bar none. With that said, I knew there was a role that needed to be fulfilled, and that is the, the challenge for every police officer that faces enormous tragedy uh, that witnesses acute suffering and violent death, that there is a, a duty and a responsibility for which we are required to perform. And there needs to be a way to, uh, during that time, during that work, to compartmentalize how we feel about things. What I say is there is a mistake uh, to not come back and visit that because it's not going to go away. So there needs to be an honoring of grief, and it continued through another additional tragedies in the latter part of 2019. It continues through this year, although much more broadly, because the amount of the community across the country that's impacted by two major crises that are ongoing to this day. So there is a lot, a lot of suffering, there's a lot of grief, and the at some point, we need to be in that place and in that space and just honor what we feel and be present with it. How should that be done? Because obviously there's a lot of people with those same emotions you just expressed, mm -hmm. that whole like personal pain, even though they didn't know people personally. How should that grief be, too, is not the right word for it, but sort of 
I don't know, express. I'll just give the personal example, but also community example. The vigil, the night of August the 4th, was huge. I had maybe two or three hours sleep from August 3rd over August 4th, right? So two o'clock in the morning, I get the call. I'm never, I'm never back to sleep there. I'm trying to get a plane, get to the airport, and get back to bed. So it was an exhausting long day. It began very, very early with very little sleep. Yet I not just wanted to be with the community, I needed to be with the community. I needed to be with people. I didn't need to be anybody special. I just needed to be a part of the community. That was my sole interest in really being at the vigil, to be part of the community. I wasn't up on stage. I was behind the stage. I wasn't looking to be the epicenter of attention. That was the beginning of a healing process for me, as I know there were so many members of the community, because so many individuals went out of the ways to come up and say, thank you so much for what your officers did, or I mean, tears in her eyes, you know, the, the emotion was palpable. It truly was. I never saw how many people were there because I was in the crowd. When I saw the, the photo from the Dayton Daily News, from that stage along Fifth Street, I thought, wow. I mean, I was stunned by how many people were there that I didn't realize it was that large. I knew for two blocks behind me, because it was behind the stage, it was filled with people. That was crucial to begin that healing process for an entire grieving Miami Valley, because you know, quite a large number of people who were uh, killed or injured were not from Dayton proper, they're from the region. So that was huge as the beginning of a process of healing. But at some point we just need to honor grief as it is to project it, on the world and be angry at the world is an error. It is to potentially create more harm. To stuff it down is to do self-harm. So it's about just acknowledging and being fully with what is sad. In doing so, one may experience, at least my experience is, and this is a cyclical process too, it isn't like one time and you're done, but as awful as it feels in that moment, as hopeless at times that feeling can be, when it's allowed to be fully expressed as it is. And it's, that's tears, from my view. That's the only way. I, I don't think there's other ways. Uh, maybe there, I'm sorry, but for me, it's tears. I'll say that. But once that is passed, there is an enormous sense of peace that follows it. So there's this, the other side of grief. And it's a repetitive process until there's enough of that healing that occurs. So it's from an Eastern tradition, befriending emotions befriending the difficult emotions. So it's about befriending, and that means being up close and personal. In fact, the, the term it's used actually means to be next to, not to be identified. This is the tricky part, and it gets a little technical here of the conversation, but it's not identifying with the emotion, is it is being present with it, but from a standpoint of being, to observe it at the same time we're experiencing. It's called metacognition, is the term that's sometimes used in psychological research. One of the things at that visual was the whole chat do something. Do you think enough has been done or what would you like to see done? What you said is true. Nothing's been done. Nothing has been done. There was overtures at the national level to do something with expanded background checks. There was a discussion before a House subcommittee with perhaps looking at, you know, quote, assault weapons. There is a whole push uh, at the governor who I think is doing an incredible job of putting a package on the table that was attended to, and I believe, an effort to balance the interests of various perspectives to get something substantive done 
to reduce gun violence. Nothing's moved on that. It requires the legislature to do much of it. So I think what you said is true. Nothing's been done. People want to know why he did it. You know, why would you, you know, how, the why, how important is the why to you? What is the why? Well, why if we have someone left to prosecute becomes a bit more important, why is an effort to understand? We first seek to understand. If we can understand that we can potentially protect, if we can predict, we can potentially prevent, right? So there's a, there's a legitimate interest in the why. It's just that we don't always have the answer to the questions that are most perplexing and difficult in our life. We don't at times have a why. And it's, there was an article written by Psychiatric Times that challenged, you know, getting past motive, because motive's kind of the why, which is much more specific too. It's why this place, why this time, why this location, why these individuals? None of that from a rational standpoint, based on what we have, have uh, you know, examined in terms of investigation. There's no reasonable answer to most of that other than location, because it was somewhere he was intimately familiar with. It was very, it knew the terrain. Uh, I think there's some, maybe some indication of why that particular night, but in terms of the particular individuals, we don't really have an answer for that at all. And even the question about, uh, you know, his sibling and his um, friend. Um, there's debate within our own investigative staff whether that was intentional or not. We, we really can't say definitively based on evidence. So there's a big question there we don't have an answer to. So its motive isn't so much crucial as mindset. That this was an evolution in uh, behavior and thinking and fixation that developed over time. It didn't happen overnight, which means there's opportunity to intervene if those who have knowledge of this fixation with violence, these ideations, very behavioral, specific behaviors that are concerning, is reported to authorities and done so early on. And there's intervention. Now, after the shooting, obviously, everybody was very much in love with the Dayton police. And a lot of people still have very good feelings about the Dayton police. Some of that was lost with the, with the riots. How are you going to get it back? And the first part will be it'll take a long-term effort uh, to be at the table and be part of conversations, which are going to be challenging and probably not. Uh, and it's the first, as I explained to, to the, the members who are part of the committees, First is to listen, need to listen and try to understand. And I, you know, obviously to some degree have been through something very, very similar in Cincinnati back in 2001. The acrimony and the hostility expressed towards Cincinnati police during that time was very prevalent and it was difficult to hear, it truly was. And I struggled for a number of months with that reality until I asked myself, what's the community really trying to say what's behind the words and then um, you're talking about the Cincinnati riots so right Cincinnati right exactly mm -hmm. 2001 and what came to me my realization at that point was that you know the community wants their children to be safe that's the same thing I want I'm a parent too I want my children to be safe too in fact I heard a very same thing said by someone who was interviewed on May 30th here 
in Dayton, when I uh, had a conversation with a police, police and clergy together group, I played that video because it struck a chord in me because here we are almost 20 years later, and one of the individuals who was at the protest on May 30th said that very thing, we want our children to be safe. That took me back 20 years because that's the same realization I came to that behind all the language, behind all the words, that's what the community was saying. And they would rather have children in prison or in jail than dead. Truth be told, we'd rather have neither happen. Once I came to that point of recognizing that, I couldn't be angry any longer. I just couldn't. I got it. When I heard it again, literally almost 20 years later, it just, it just hit me. Again, I go, wow. That's exactly where I was 19 years ago. So I think it's realizing what the community really wants and then how do we work together, and this is gonna be the key word, collectively. This can't be achieved by just police doing something differently. It can't, there has to be a community showing up. And that was the realization over the whole dialogical process in Cincinnati, uh, going back almost 20 years ago, 3,500 people participate in dialogues within eight stakeholder groups. And the outcome of that was that when you really boil down what do each group really want, they want to be treated with respect. They want to be treated fairly. They wanted problems solved in their communities and they wanted to work together to get it done. So this whole concept of community problem-oriented policing emerged out of that. And it sent this theme of mutual accountability, that police had a unique specific responsibility and so did the community. And so the Community Police Partnering Center was created as a bridge organization to reach out to community members to then engage with Cincinnati Police to create safer neighborhoods. And I left Cincinnati PD and I became the executive director of the Community Police Partnering Center working on that community engagement work. So I worked the community end of public safety for four years before I came here. 20 years later and some of the same problems are still popping up and Cincinnati in here too. You think there was actual... Was something done, just bottom line about it? There's no question that this methodology works. It's evidence-based. There's no question about that. What's very difficult to accomplish is to get this level of collaboration, cooperation, participation on the backside of violence. And that's really the lesson of Cincinnati more than anything else. The violent crime escalated in 2001 by 30%. It continued to go up. By 2006, the crime was 50%, violent crime was 50% higher than the pre-riot year of 2000. And that elevated violent crime was existed for a decade before it dropped lower than 2000. The painful lesson of Cincinnati is not that reforms didn't work, is that building on reforms on the back end of violence and the rupture of the very relationships that are necessary to create that safe environment, that is a very long, painful process and lives are lost and people are harmed along the way. That's far too high of a cost for the change everyone seeks, which is why I'm that strong advocate for recognize there is a chasm in some cases between uh, what police do and what community expects. And there needs to be a way to bridge that and bring community and police together to work in partnership because it will, safety will never be achieved without that relationship. There's no way to get there. There's also the argument that certainly that a number of things that police do 
other sectors of the of society, you know, mental health, you know, drug addiction services, et cetera, need to step up. I mean, that's the lesson of the opioid epidemic that began to escalate in 2012 here in Dayton and peaked in 2017. And it took a very long time for that system to mobilize in response mm-hmm. with a growing epidemic. We've had a gun violence epidemic in this country for a very long time that has never been adequately addressed, although violent crime has declined over a 20-year period. That is also true. But still, way too much gun violence, way too much harm. How are the community panels that you guys have going on? Well, I think it's very early on in that process. So it's a lot of it is is beginning to define the terrain of that conversation. You know, the the um, the body of of conversation that's going to occur. What kind of information is needed? So this is very much a um, you know everyone kind of getting their feet wet uh, around uh, you know, the issues, the data. Uh, the strategies, you know, what's being done, what can be done. So this is going to, this is the, the churning, the early churning of the hard work of understanding the complexity of, uh, you know, public safety, much less anything else in our society. Our society is only becoming more complex over time, not less so. Right. Technology is a perfect example of the complexity, right? Um, just the evolution of endless amount of fears of video of events in public space from whether they're from you know government from businesses from private citizens the proliferation of video um, how does one get all that and be able to understand what happened in a particular event and get an accurate view of it there's just so much out there and so it's there's a lot more complexity to everything we do Just popping in to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast, and I'm Amelia Robinson. This podcast was made possible by the Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app, and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust to keep your family safe and connected. As a community, we may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together and we'll get through this crisis too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. What did you think about Dayton when you were a kid growing up in Cincinnati? You know, I didn't know much about Dayton other than it's interesting. I do remember uh, driving. My parents would go to Houghton Lake oftentimes up to Michigan during summer vacation. I never forget a ride through uh, Dayton, the downtown Dayton, and seeing Jeep and blue helmets of with the riot control personnel in it. Never forget that image. That was during you know, the turmoil of the 60s. So, oh, so you that saw that with your own eyes. Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, we drove through and I go, wow. You know, because this was happening in the 60s. I was in the suburbs, and so there was a curfew in Cincinnati, et cetera. But I didn't get a sense of, you know, what was really happening. I didn't see any police or National Guard or things like that. Uh, so really going through Dayton, my first exposure to actually seeing riot patrol personnel with the blue helmets. Why did you decide to become a police officer if you didn't have much exposure as a kid? <laughs> That's a great question. 
You know, Joseph Campbell calls it the serendipitous adventure. It's not the one that you plan and nonetheless the one you find yourself on. I was supporting myself, putting myself through college, and I was working in sales at, at that time, a store called Shilato's, for those who can remember back that far, which now is the more modern version of that after many evolutions, Macy's, if you will. Okay. But that I was working there, and a couple of store detectives, I got to know them all from working with their, you know, in the store. And I noticed they were a couple store detectives were kind of walking intently up one of the sales aisles. I go, that looks like something's going on. And I kind of nonchalantly followed behind them because it looked like something was getting ready to happen. And then I saw they had a struggle with someone and I was able to go over assist and apply a, a wrist lock and basically escort that person back to the security office. And about seven months or so later, one of the detectives went on maternity leave. They needed somebody to be a store detective. And they said, you know, are you interested? And it paid $3 an hour at the time. Oh, wow. Instead of $2.10 in a commission that the men's shave bar. So uh, supporting myself, putting myself through college. Yeah, $3 an hour sounded really good. So I took the job. And it really just captured my interest. I had no interest in policing before that. No interest in law enforcement. Zero. I was a nutrition major. I mean, oh, wow. that's what I graduated in. So if you, if you want to have, you see a really good meal, I'm, I even do artistic meals, by the way. <laughs> it's about presentation and color and texture. It's really an art form for why I look at it. So I really enjoy cooking, but that was, I was a nutrition major and I got nutrition because I was interested in fitness because I was athletic. So I did weight training. Later, I went on to become a martial artist, a competitive power lifter. So the missing element way back in the 70s was nutrition, was a really early emerging science. And not a lot was known about the nutrition and wellness and fitness. And so that's became my interest. What did you think you wanted to be? Like a chef or a nutritionist? Or what, did, what were you going to do? So I was going to be a registered dietitian. You know, oh, okay. People with, who either had organic disease and they needed special diets or some other special dietary needs. And so help people apply nutritional principles to their dietary needs. First thing you did was kind of help with that apprehension, I guess, would be. Mm-hmm. And after that, you became a security guard. And then you went to the academy after that, or? No, actually, <laughs> I went to the United States Air Force. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Up at Wright-Patterson uh, as a civilian, though. I was what's called a general supply specialist. And I worked for, at that time, Air Force Logistics Command. We were what's called co-located. So our offices were co-located with systems command personnel because the idea was that we need to have logistical concerns, basically support of that weapon system over its lifespan that the lessons learned from that need to be incorporated into weapon design, into aircraft design. Well, that was a new approach to the Air Force. They have those who had needed support those aircraft systems once they became operational. There were some costly errors in design and in prior aircraft that were designed. And so it was to build those lessons learned into aircraft as it's being built. And so I did that for about a year. I worked in the engine SPO system program office. And then I worked on the F-16, which is still out in the operational theater to this day. Oh, that's cool. Was there for almost a year. And then I got a call from Gene Farrar, who is the chief at the University of Cincinnati police and he offered me a job as a police officer at University Cincinnati Medical Center and so that's where I began my career in September of 1978. What did your parents do? My dad was a a builder uh, by really never finished high school. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. It's kind of that traditional if you will family at that time but my dad did construction and when I was 14 years of age he said well you know come on it's time to go to work. (laughs) For instance there's a person that's doing the 
moving around and finishing, and there's a person behind the wheelbarrow wheeling it. I was that second person. So <laughs> I thought, you know, I don't think I want to do this for my life of work. And so uh, that was a motivator for me to really get in college and finish college. Why do you think most people nowadays become police officers? Well, you know, I think it's for a host of reasons. I think if they get into it, just quote, to have a job, they're in the wrong place. It is far too difficult. It is far too challenging. If someone is not in it as a, I've used the term, a calling comes from the word a vocation, vocatio, the Latin means to be called. If one is not there for a calling, I think they won't last very long or they won't be very good. It really depends why people come uh, to law enforcement. There was a surge of applicants during the Great Recession. We had like 3,500 people apply to be a Dayton police officer. Only about 1,000 showed up to take the test. So 2,500 didn't even show up. So I think it's for a variety of reasons. Some of it's family history. For me, it was a bit of an accident of experience. It was just something about that work that just captivated me. And, you know, I look back and there were some elements strong in my life. My mom was a, was a peacekeeper. She really was the strongest influence, I think, in my life to this day. I absorbed a lot of her uh, attitude and demeanor toward life. You came here in like 2008, right? Exactly. Uh -huh. Why did you decide to stay? <laughs> well, I'm a deep diver, not a surface swimmer. So <laughs> when I was actually asked by the FOP executive board when I met with them a part of this process, they go like, they, for one of the questions say, well, how long are you going to stay? You know? And I said, well, I think you really need to stay at least five years to make any difference at all. Uh, well, here I am 13 years later. I mean, I was not looking for a place to just pass through looking for a place to call home and a, and a place where I can make a difference. And I was really amazed when I came here, what I found in terms of a capacity of the Dayton Police Department. And what was missing is a true sense of direction and a, a methodology, a clear approach to policing uh, that would solidify the talent that was already in the house. What is your philosophy of policing? Well, I mean, we, we're problem solvers. I mean, fundamentally, that's our job is to solve problems. And the problems we're asked to solve are rather complex. And does it really solve those problems requires more than police and more than even government generally. In fact, one of the classic questions, so there's this methodology called problem-oriented policing, which emerged um, you know, it's roughly, I think, in the 80s or so, uh, community policing began before that. Uh, they came out of two different crises. Uh, community policing came out of a crisis of legitimacy. The police have lost legitimacy in the eyes of the community they serve. We're living through that again. The second crisis in policing was one of efficacy, that a number of studies were conducted of classic police processes like rapid response to crime and, and random patrol and found they made no difference in terms of preventing crime. So that was a bit of a crisis for policing. So those practices that were relied on traditionally controlled crime didn't work. Now what? Well, the now what came out of the work of Herman Goldstein and this problem-oriented policing, with it, which is not a philosophy, it's a methodology. It's a way of thinking about crime as a, a series of problems and then a methodology as a SARA process, scanning analysis, response, and assess, assessment, a methodology, problem-solving methodology to go about 
helping to solve those problems with members of the community and often solutions to those crime, crime or disorder to be your, have very little to do anything to what police can do is far more to do what the community can do. So it's really working with the community, educating community about how to literally prevent crime through you know, very evidence-based practices conflict to cooperation. Obviously, Dayton has been dinged in the past for not having enough minority representation in the police department. What do you think that is and what role does a police test have to play in that? You know, it's an excellent question. You actually asked because I was asked this very same question as a part of the selection process. What can we do to increase diversity of the police department? I said, well, there's two things we need to look at. One we need to look at the selection process itself. And the other one we need to do is how do we recruit? I mean, so I asked the question during that interview process, has the test been validated? Well, all you could hear was crickets in the room, complete silence. That was an indication to me that perhaps there was trouble in, in the future. This was in the fall of 07. So I became chief in January of 08. And in the fall of 08, the city of Dayton was sued for both police and hiring disparate practices and specifics related to police is the written test had disparate impact. There was a problem with the test itself that was never validated. And that is test to be, um, to be very clear about that is the test was been administered by the civil service um, commission and nothing mm -hmm. to do with the Dayton police department. Uh, so there was a flawed testing process, and that was incorrect. It took almost four years. So it, was, it wasn't until August of 2012 before a class was finally hired under the new testing process. Uh, so the selection process is this important element, but then recruiting is the other piece of that. And that, a lot of that uh, shifted towards civil service maybe five or six years ago. I think the challenge is the times that we're really trying to recruit in. If you look back over the past six years, the turmoil and the, the scrutiny of policing practices and the adverse uh, news stories about police action, I think it makes it pretty challenging to do recruiting over the past six years. So that certainly had an impact. We have no way to, at least there's been no action to incentivize residents of the city themselves to get, you know, for instance, years and years and years and years ago, Cincinnati, if you were a resident of the city, you got extra points with civil service tests. That's never been implemented here. There were potential ways to incentivize residents, but, you know, that action was never taken through civil service. So that's one thing that always comes up is the residency rule that when that came, went out, things got worse. You think that's true or is that just what people think that in other words, how much difference does it make if a police officer lives in the city that he serves or she? You know, that's an interesting question. Because if, if you really think of it, someone is really willing to risk their very life. And we know that risk is real. We just lost a veteran detective in November of last year. Literally willing to risk their very life. Do we think they're not committed to the community? So I think there's a lack of appreciation for the dedication that people bring to the profession wherever they serve. With that said, do I think it's preferable that people do live in the community? Yeah, I do. I mean, I live in the city. I think all the senior command staff live in the city. So yeah, I think it is important that we, that we are part of the community. But just because someone doesn't live here doesn't mean they are not truly committed. So I, I think one has to look at that in a maybe a more balanced way. Policing has always been like a very stressful sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. The way things are now, is this something you would ever recommend for one of your children to become a law enforcement officer? Well, I wouldn't because <laughs> one's a doctor. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. One's an accountant. <laughs> my youngest is still trying to find that path, but it's this is not in his wheelhouse. I mean, it's just not his nature. So. <laughs> but my oldest son, who's my stepson from my first marriage, is a Cincinnati police officer now of 24-year duration. Oh. And I have a bit of a unique history in a way. I actually sent a, a video out to all of our personnel early on when the events on uh, late May began to erupt. And, and I said that um, not everyone is in our agency is wearing this experience in the same way. And I said, that I, my career began, I mean, I matched the pedigree of the senior leadership of the Cincinnati Police Department. I was white, West Side, Catholic, Elder High School. It should have been seamless, smooth sailing for me, except for one simple but radically different fact that I was in interracial marriage when I came on as a Cincinnati police officer. And that made all the difference into how I was treated by many in that organization. There's a gift in not being in the in-group. certainly allowed me uh, to see what was both good and what was wrong. So it wasn't part of the group think because I looked and the, you know, the background was as if I was just one of the majority, but part of my life was radically different than that majority. Was your ex-wife, was she black or was she something else? Black, yes. Mm -hmm. yes black. And then, so uh, Chris was three and a half at that time. So he, um, you know, raising basically from three and a half on. And then he, at some point decided he wanted to be a police officer, actually working store security at Shilatos too. So a kind of similar path. But he went on to become a Cincinnati police officer and just completed 20, 24 years, although he struggles. We had this conversation because he could retire in a year and he was like, what, do I stay or do I go? Um, I, he's struggling with that. He said, for the stay up the second time in my career, I, I'm in riot gear. It's difficult, I know, for him. And he was on 12-hour days, no days off. I know what that looks like. We continue to talk about it and I'm I believe he's going to, you know, continue to hang in there and, uh, and continue to try to progress in his career. But I know he struggled when all this happened again. He was like, wow, here, here I am again. So it had not been an easy journey for him. It certainly wasn't an easy journey for me. And my, so, you know, a lot of my years early in Cincinnati. And the years here have been difficult for a whole bunch of reasons we already talked about. So it's, there's, this is not easy work. How has that first part of your career informed you now or what you do now as chief? Certainly made me realize that there was a number of divides, really, I saw. When there's an absence of a unifying vision, this is my kind of way I saw the past, then relationships break down over fracture lines. And I saw that in Cincinnati. They broke down based on race gender, and even whether someone was, quote, sworn or, quote, civilian staff. I saw those fracture lines in the early 80s. It became clear to me that without a unifying, clear, a common shared vision and mission, those fracture lines were going to continue to create challenges and being the best of who we all could be, which is really what the, the collaborative process was in Cincinnati in 01. It was an effort to come up with a shared vision and a shared approach where everyone was committed. Now, I can be clear, not everybody was committed after the, the ink was on the document, 
of how we go forward. So that was a struggle. Not everybody was all in, in the community or in the police leadership, by the way, city, in city leadership. Right. Because uh, the mayor tried to uninvite the Department of Justice the year after the riots occurred as if the Department of Justice was going to leave because the mayor wanted them to. Right. I don't think so. I don't think that's happening. <laughs> I can tell you it did not happen. <laughs> there were mixed messages from City Hall. There was um, not clear unity in the in the, the police leadership. The One of the plaintiff organizations, the Black United Front, has to be removed from the lawsuit after the settlement. We actually met with them to try to get have them engage in the problem with policing. They said, you know, I think we're going to kind of be on the sidelines and we're going we're gonna to watch and there will be a bit of a watchdog. Uh, this required folks to engage. So there was, I think that was problematic. Uh, so this was anything, you know, but easy. So it is important, again, to have that shared vision and mission approach and to get past the difference to get, get toward cooperation, not to gloss over the uh, disagreements or the conflict, but clearly you have to get past the conflict and find how to re-engage or nothing good comes. Now you said something earlier I want to ask you about for a long time, like the whole Eastern philosophy thing. You, 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 what is that about? Like, you, you do yoga, you teach yoga, or you used to teach yoga? So the uh, Kettering Network took over the building where the yoga studio was. But <laughs> I did it for about eight years here in Dayton. Uh, first, actually, up at uh, Webster and Leo, there was uh, actually now it's a fencing studio, but I taught there. Well, for probably about four years, free, I did it as a community service. That location became a fencing location. And then one of the videographers from Channel 7, they interviewed me about uh, basically trauma, basically post-traumatic stress disorders is some years back. And then the videographer's uh, wife was a yoga teacher. And so I went up teaching then at her studio, which was in an Oakwood, right up by Dorothy Lane Market. And I did that for about probably four years or so at just enough cost to pay for the rent of the room itself. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking to make income. I was looking to help share this with individuals who, because it was the greatest, you know, gift I gave myself about 30 years ago. It was this singular thing that got me out of two years of chronic depression. So I have a pretty good appreciation for how effective these methods can be. And so this ability to uh, engage what's called self-regulation. It's, it's a skill set that everyone really needs, and we see it in uh, uh, far too prevalent, uh, you know, across the, any community, by the way. There's something called what they call the resilient zone, or sometimes it's a window of tolerance. I like the resilient zone. It's a better way to define it. There's this continuum where we're able to be, quote, effective, even under a lot of distress, stress, distress. When we get outside of that resilient zone, we either go into chaos or we go into to shutdown. The idea is to expand the banks of a river, pushing the banks of the river back so that we can increasingly develop the capacity to be with what's difficult. We are in a time across this country and even the world of great difficulty. If there ever is a time that we need to have a high degree of capability of truly be able to still be effective under acute distress, it is now. Right. That is a teachable, trainable skill. It has to do with how one uh, utilizes their awareness, particularly breath and movement is a very powerful self-regulator and this is their science-based scientific western-based studies that have validated this thing called heart rate variability and the 
the, the effect of breath on the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. So one is flight, fight, the other one is mm -hmm. rest, digest. The breath is a powerful medium to, to recreate a balance or to strike a greater balance between those and get out of acute distress. So these are teachable, knowable, portable skills. And unfortunately, they're not well known in the population at large. And that's tragic. Why'd you get involved in it? Because I was suffering. <laughs> that's that simple. I was in pain every day, emotional, physical pain every day. And I was... Just from being a police officer or what was that? Yeah, I was, I was a police captain at the time. Pain can be a, a powerful motivator. It was for me. I wanted to get out of pain and I explored a lot of different, you know, approaches to that. Uh, I wasn't interested in medication and, you know, talk therapy wasn't working for me. There's a lot of advances been made in, in the area of therapy and medication. So I'm not being critical of that. I'm just saying... 25, almost 30 years ago now. It wasn't interesting to one, the other one wasn't working. I'm a pretty voracious reader, so I went to the Level and Library at the time and I came across an uh, audio tape series called Healing in the Mind by TV journalist Bill Moyer. Oh, wow. And featured in that, one of those segments was this very young, I think it was an engineer by training, John Cabot Zinn, who was using mindfulness meditation and a general form of yoga and a body scan to help Western patients who had chronic health conditions, uh, many in daily pain, medications uh, then having to be withdrawn because of increased tolerance, but Western medicine had nothing to offer them. John Kabat-Zinn convinced folks at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center to let me work with these patients. And many of them, a large portion of them had increased quality of life. Some had complete remediation of symptoms. That's all I needed to hear. I went out and got a yoga book, opened it up, and I started practicing. I was like, I'm in. And I dabbled with yoga in my teens, 20s, and early 30s. So it wasn't was unfamiliar to me. So there was always that interest in it, you know, behind the scenes, but I was more interested in my early, you know, late teens, early 20s, and, and weightlifting, powerlifting, martial arts. Um, but none of that helped me when depression arrived. It was this yoga, this body-mind practice that made all the difference. So I've stuck with it because it's that thing that has served me during the most difficult, painful times of my life. Well, that was fun. I think people are going to be really interested to hear what you said. Thank you for taking the time to talk because I know you don't. You're welcome. You're it's welcome. not like you don't have anything else to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> I told you the Chief had some interesting things to say. And boy, do we have some interesting shows coming up. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced, edited, hosted, and written by me, Amelia Robinson, in my living room. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Lyman of TL Creates of Columbus. Uh, see you alligators next time, crocodiles. Bye-bye.